0: you're listening to the audio only version of the moe gamer podcast don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on youtube check moegamer.net for a link to the channel and now on with the show Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Moe Gamer Podcast. I'm Pete Davison from MoeGamer.net and I'm joined once again by my good friend Chris Kasky from MrGilderPixels.com and uh, we're both coming at you live from the midst of lockdown once again. So uh, yeah, how are you, how are you holding up being locked in your house Chris?
1: uh being locked up in my house with persona 5 and ff7 remake i think i'm managing yep. okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm in, exactly I'm in lockdown how I'm as well i'm in lockdown with uh and takamaki and tifa i could get worse
0: yeah yeah exactly how i'm feeling like my, my my wife is just starting to go a little bit stir crazy now because her, her day job's pretty dead as well but uh it, with the nature of it, she sort of has to stay logged in and paying attention, whereas my day job when it's dead, I can just go off and play on my switch so that's <laughs>
1: it's pretty oh, sweet you're very lucky I don't know we don't talk much about like what we actually do, like I'm a supply manager. Mm-hmm. So so right now I'm in charge of my company's efforts to source COVID nineteen supplies so our manufacturing yeah. workforce can continue to function. So uh-huh. I'm just chewing my nails off like nine to ten hours a day trying to find masks and hand sanitizer and cleansing wipes and so like my 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 day I I'd be isolating even if I wasn't like legally mandated to do so because like by yeah. the time five o'clock rolls around I can hardly function.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah, I, I am having pretty much the exact opposite situation right now, so it's it's rather pleasant actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it surely sounds it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: ah, but anyway. Alright, okay, so the plan for today is uh, we're going to follow our usual three-part format. We're going to start with some news, although there hasn't been a a ton of it going on recently, largely thanks to uh, the pandemic situation causing a lot of people to shut down or either slow things down or that sort of thing. But there's a few things we can talk about. Uh, Then we'll follow that with the usual talk of what we've been playing recently. And our main topic for today, with the recent release of Final Fantasy VII Remake at the time of recording, we thought we'd talk about remakes in general, and um, have a bit of a chat about uh, some of the different approaches that people can take to them, uh, what's what's good about them, and I'm sure there'll be some Final Fantasy VII talk in there as well. So, alright, let's kick off with some news. So, it's been a little while since we recorded, so we've got some stuff that is going back to the start of april 2020 here so uh first one i've got is that uh city connection uh which is the company that now owns uh, all of the jaleco ips they've actually opened up a a licensing catalog site uh for all of the jaleco ips for other creators to uh, contact them and make use of things and so there's a full list there of all of the things that they currently own um so if anyone wants to uh, do a project um with any of those ips uh, they they can now easily get in touch with city connection and license them uh, which is pretty exciting because there's a lot of ips there that have been dormant for a very long time and uh it'd be really interesting to see some people do something with them even if it's just like a, a port or a or a, a re-release of certain things but uh yeah the possibility of new stuff Based around Jalico IPs is, uh, is certainly very very interesting to me.
1: There's a screenshot in like the official header of uh, a Phalanx, and I got a little tingle. <laughs>
0: yeah, so this I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, some more well known than others. Um, uh, of course, my priority is of course Rodland um, and Soldam, which are both on there uh soldams obviously had a a recent re-release on switch and i think it's out on ps4 now as well um rodland i'd love to see just 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 an arcade archives release of that's all i need i just want to play the original arcade version again yeah that'll be fine um but then there's a bunch of other cool stuff in there as well there's a a lot of shoot-'em-ups that uh did there's um edf earth defense force with not but not that earth defense force uh which is actually already available on the nintendo switch online snes app if i remember correctly i think so um yeah um there's obviously game paradise and game 10 goku which was uh recently re-released um with the the port for for ps4 and that came to switch as well didn't it i think is that right i think so Uh, if if there isn't a switch port now i think they were working on one um yeah all sorts of stuff so some interesting stuff there for sure um but nothing nothing specific to share yet but it, it is now open for people to uh to browse through and say, "Oh, I'd like to make a, I'd like to make a new Rodland, please." I was going to say, <laughs> now you can, you'll, you'll finally
1: be able to live your dream of creating a visual, a romance visual novel where you have to choose between the girl from Rodland or the girl from City Connection. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! All
0: right, uh, moving along then. Um, Rogue Legacy, which is the game credited with creating the term "roguelite," um, is getting a sequel. Um, so they've revealed that it exists, uh, and also shown a few uh, bits of concept art and some screenshots as well. Um, so far, it's looking fairly kind of similar in appearance and, and tone to the previous one. So there's this this sort of um, hand drawn, cartoony style going on.
1: Yeah, the and big difference uh, here
0: is they've ditched the pixel art.
1: So now it's yeah. like now it's actually like like a hand drawn animated style kind of yeah. it's kind of reminiscent of that beautiful wonder boy remake that uh, P- uh, uh lizard cube did oh yes
0: yeah yeah that's right yeah so uh, and again it's all sort of uh, based on generational gameplay so you sort of pass things on from generation to generation and each new generation of character has their own abilities and stuff so yeah if you enjoyed rogue legacy one um it looks like two is going to provide more of the same but more so so that's cool
1: <laughs> as a sequel should
0: exactly exactly all right uh next story we've got is that uh apparently the korean ratings board for nintendo switch um has a listing for snk gals fighters which is the precursor to snk heroines which came out a while back um and was uh, actually a neo geo pocket color exclusive um very fondly regarded by those who played it though um so yeah we we don't really know anything about what's happening with this at all, but um, yeah, it has been rated for Switch in Korea, whatever that means.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's weird because there's kind of been this undercurrent of like Neo Geo Pocket games on Switch. Yeah, like, a lot like, of
0: them have been sort of coming as pre-order bonuses and stuff, haven't they?
1: Yeah, so like um, they did it with um, Samurai Showdown. Like if you got the yeah. Samurai Showdown or or Samurai Spirits on the Switch, you got the a, a, a digital version of like one of the Neo Geo Pocket versions. Um, yeah. So there's a little bit of precedent for this, and it's exciting because Gal's Fighters is just so much fun. There's yeah. just something very there's like the, the 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 sprites in the Neo Geo Pocket fighting games specifically have such a very distinct style to them. Like, they're really charming.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know it's a a very charming game, and um, I believe... um kimmy who we've mentioned a couple of times on this uh, on this podcast as well she's she's written a few things about it or, or certainly squeed about it on twitter a few times as well so uh, <laughs> yeah yeah um I, i'd be up for for having a look at that whatever form it takes because uh, i know it's sort of a, a bit of an under underappreciated classic much like uh, sort of the neager pocket color itself really mm, so.
1: god i cannot wait for analogs handheld system
0: hmm
1: because yeah. it's gonna play you're gonna be able to buy an adapter to play Neo Geo Pocket. And yeah. then and then play it on the TV. Yeah, yeah, it's that'll be
0: that will be sweet.
1: What I wouldn't give to be able to burn through biomotor Unitron again. <laughs> Which for those who are not familiar, it's basically like armored core plus Pokemon. Oh, nice. So like you 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 go through like dungeons with your like cute robot that you like customize the legs, arms, body and head of, and like buy parts for. And like, yeah, it's the best.
0: Nice. Nice. All right. Well, we'll uh, keep an eye out for what's going on with that then. Okay. Uh, moving on, uh, fantasy star online two, um, at the time of recording is actually released on Xbox one. Um, it released on April the 15th of 2020, uh, so you can now download and play that in North America on Xbox One. Although apparently there is a fairly simple workaround if you're outside North America and you want to play the um, the Xbox One version. The um, Windows 10 version is apparently launching in May. So they haven't given a specific date for that yet, but it, it is coming in May 2020. So
1: yeah, there's so, that to look forward to. So this could theoretically be the last you ever hear from me
0: when the Windows 10. Because <laughs> when the Windows 10 version <laughs> drops,
1: I'm. I'm done, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. They they haven't given any news about other platforms yet, but they did say a while back that they they are planning on releasing it on uh, other other versions as well. So, um, yeah, um, and I believe with the way Fantasy Star Online Two works, uh, you just have a Sega account, so you, it should be cross platform. I think. This is the whole. Uh, so, yeah, so hopefully. If you want to start playing immediately, you should hopefully be able to play on the Windows 10 version, and then transfer over to PS4 or Switch when those versions do finally drop as well. If, assuming you want to, anyway. I
1: was going to so. say I like I like that you used and, or instead of and. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, okay. Continuing on, uh, Retrobit is apparently making a alternative Dreamcast controller in uh, late 2020. So uh, what they've done with this is they've redesigned the D-pad for the Dreamcast. Um, They've given it a new analog stick. They're doing wired and wireless models. And they've made a six-button layout instead of the four-button layout of the original. They've also moved the triggers slightly um, so that presumably it's a bit more comfortable. Um, Yeah, so... um, I mean, it will remain to be seen what this feels like in your hands, because it's, it's still got that sort of distinctive Dreamcast controller shape, which is not the most comfortable, but um, perhaps the different layout of the buttons and the D-pad and the analog stick and stuff will make it a little bit more comfortable to
1: use. So Yeah, I'm very excited about this. Because retro, well, RetroBit has an official Sega license.
0: so oh, that's it's, cool. So retro, yeah.
1: RetroBit's controllers are... Official Sega controllers. Um, I yeah. have. I I just ordered that their Saturn controller. Um, like yeah. this, like a special edition box set that comes in a nice like clamshell case that includes the uh, a USB and Saturn wireless adapters. So you can use yeah. it on you can use it on either. It's, oh, um, that's nice. I'm yeah. very yeah. I'm very excited about that because it's gonna all, yeah. you know, I'll use the USB on my computer for um for Mame fighting games and I'll. Yeah, finally be able to more comfortably use my Saturn instead of having to put it on the coffee table and run the cables across my living room. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah um, But yeah, problem.
1: and it's the same with the Dreamcast. Um, you know, I'm very excited to be able to finally have a wireless solution that works. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you, people don't like the the shape of the Dreamcast controller, um, there's another company out there called Retro Fighters. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. heard of them. They their whole deal is they. They've devised like a pretty s- standard controller that looks like what you expect a controller to look like, um, yeah. <laughs> and then they just and then they just kind of port it to other systems. So like specifically, they do it for systems that have controllers. So so like you, there's a N64 version, there's a Dreamcast version, and you can get this very specific standard. Almost it almost looks a bit like the um. um what am i trying to say the looks a lot like the switch pro controller
2: yeah
1: um but you can play it on the n64 or the dreamcast and it actually has like the dreamcast one has the appropriate slots for the memory card and the vmu built right in so there's a lot of really cool third-party controller options out there these days
0: yeah yeah definitely definitely um it's yeah it's it's worth mentioning as well for those not familiar with the retro bits when i say an alternative dreamcast controller this is this is not a controller for modern consoles that is like a dreamcast controller this is a controller for the dreamcast so which is cool yeah it's really really neat to see that there are companies making new controllers for classic systems so yeah,
1: yeah i mean it, it does remain to be seen if they might do what they did with the saturn um i'm not sure if the wireless version is going to be 24 gigahertz or bluetooth mm-hmm. but um the saturn controllers they released. There was also a USB version available, and like I mentioned, you can get a Saturn um, wireless dongle or a USB wireless dongle. So though, although it was made for the Saturn in mind, you can play it on anything that's USB compatible. Yeah. Um, same, they, they also did the same with the Genesis six-button pads, officially yeah. licensed. It's really really cool work they do with Sega.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, uh, moving along then. Um, N.A.S. America has announced that they're bringing Giraffe and Annika uh, to the West in August of 2020. Uh, that's coming for Switch and PS4. Um, now, this is an independently developed adventure game with some really lovely art. Um, it's got a, it's got sort of cel shaded style characters and sort of hand drawn comic style cutscenes and uh, some really nice backgrounds and stuff and yeah it's sort of uh based around um cute animal characters and rhythm based battles so that that covers both of our tastes <laughs>
1: in, yeah in one, one fell a, swoop there there's a sassy antagonist witch with purple hair so yeah <laughs> yeah
0: yep. huh. yeah yeah so this this looks like a lot of fun um there's uh, there's a trailer up now as well that i'll include in the video version of this podcast so you can have a look as well. but yeah this looks really nice um There are going to be um, physical copies as well. Uh, NAS America have been really good at doing sort of physical copies of of, uh, smaller scale, more niche interest stuff as well. So it may well be sort of uh, one of those ones where they do um, like a a sort of limited run of uh, an affordable collector's edition, like they've done with a lot of their other games. Um, Oh, in fact, it it does sound like they're doing this. Uh, It's called Mm -hmm. a musical mayhem edition which includes the game, a set of three patches, um as in physical patches, not game patches, um an art book and a soundtrack CD. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll look out for that in August of 2020.
1: Yeah, I'm really fond like I don't love rhythm games that are just rhythm games, but I love mm-hmm. like adventure games or role-playing games that have rhythm game elements. Like I love when the yeah. rhythm is tied like the rhythm game is tied to like the other stuff, like essentially, like the combat, like whenever there's a conflict in this game, it's a rhythm game. Yeah,
0: it, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sort of dodging things to the rhythm and that sort of thing. So, like enemies are firing shots at you, and you're dodging from side to side in time with the music and so
1: on. So, yeah, yeah R- really looking forward to it.
0: Okay, uh, next thing coming along uh, is, uh, I mean, this is relatively old news at the time of recording, but the PlayStation Five controller has been revealed. Uh, it's called DualSense. And it kind of looks like um, kind of a cross between uh, an Xbox controller and a DualShock controller to me. Um, I know a few people have sort of been a bit down on the design of this, but I, um, it looks like it might be sort of quite good and quite comfortable. Yeah. I don't know what you, what you feel about it.
1: I feel that it looks like the PlayStation 5 might be white, and that's all I can think about. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. Because I am obsessed with collecting white consoles
0: oh nice
1: it's it's like one of my things so if, yeah. if this controller is any indic- I think all i can think about one of the things that's interesting to me is like reading between the lines is um they've moved the light bar you know the light bar is on the rear of the place the rear or the top of the playstation 4 controller yeah. and, and the original thinking behind that was so the camera can track it for motion stuff yeah, And, like, four games used it when, like, the PS4 launched. And, like, all those stupid gimmicks, everyone forgot about it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So they've, they've moved the light bar to two strips on the side of the touchpad on the DualSense yeah. controller. So it looks like they've pretty much abandoned that notion. That, like, yeah. we're going to use the forward-facing light bar as, like, a motion tracking, like, camera thing. So I just mm-hmm. think it's interesting how, like, subtly, like, they've abandoned that
0: yeah that's interesting though because that was that was used quite a bit in vr games yes um, and they've said that playstation vr is going to be used um with playstation 5 as well um so I, I don't know if that means that you have to use move controllers or if you'll have to use a dualshock 4 with it but uh, yeah that's 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 interesting from that perspective certainly um, there's um, there's haptic feedback in this and adaptive triggers, uh, which means that sort of it can adjust the tension of the triggers according to what you're supposedly doing with them. I, I've never experienced that for myself, but I know that I know that there's some controllers out there that do that already. Um, but it's it's an interesting thing to incorporate into a controller. Um, they've continued the ongoing trend of start and select no longer being fashionable buttons to have on a controller, and we've now got. Three lines and three lines facing outwards. <laughs> Start there a, select. There was a, there was a great post on Twitter the other day. It's like you hand that controller to a, a non gamer and ask them to press one of those buttons. What what do you tell
1: them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... yeah. So also like I, I don't like to be negative, but man, this D pad looks like it's gonna be ass. <laughs> like I mean now. It's beautiful, it's sleek, and it makes sense aesthetically with the controller, but man, oh man, like everyone gonna have to be buying fighting pads. Like this thing is gonna be terrible. Like that is a terrible looking D-pad.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I've I've never had as much of a problem with the PlayStation D pads as some people do, but yeah, I know some people really don't like them, especially for fighting games and stuff. So
1: yeah, well, they're great. It's the the PlayStation D pads are serviceable for games where D pad performance isn't important. Yeah. yeah, is the best way to phrase it. It's it's not a terrible D pad, but as i was mentioned earlier i've got to be in my bonnet about collecting guilty gear games right now and uh (laughs) it's not (laughs) the official playstation 5 controller is not a friend i would choose to bring to a bring along on a guilty gear session let's put it that (laughs) way yeah yeah
0: all right well that's uh, that's looking interesting i would certainly be curious to get one of those in my hands all right. continuing on, uh, we've got some more news about Street Race Four, which is actually out very soon at the time of recording, I believe, isn't it? Um, yeah, the thirtieth
1: officially. Yes, so. yes. So there, there
0: was a date. There was a date leaked a little while back, which was April the twenty-third, but apparently that was not final or confirmed. So yeah, uh, April the thirtieth. So day after my birthday. Um, so I will enjoy that when my limited run copy arrives. Yeah, I can't um, wait. Yeah, so the uh, the latest news uh, to go with this is that it's incorporating uh, original pixel art versions of the characters from their games with their movesets and abilities intact, which means that there's a total of 17 different playable characters in this game, which is enormous for a brawler. Yeah, I've never um, seen anything like it. Yeah, um, and there's also the opportunity to switch the background music of the first two Streets of Rage games as well, which is neat. Uh, So if you enjoy some sort of classic 90s user Koshiro beats, then uh, you'll have the opportunity to do that.
1: And if you don't, I don't want to talk to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Very interested to see how that that turns out. Uh, It's certainly looking very nice so far. So um, I'm sure we'll have more to say once the actual game is out all right uh continuing on um a little while back uh sabotage studio who are the people who made uh what was it the was it the messenger yes mm-hmm. yes um yeah the the guys who made the messenger uh, announced a turn-based rpg called sea of stars uh, which is basically a prequel to the messenger isn't it isn't it like sort of several hundred years before that but it's got some ties to it if i remember correctly yeah that's right um but sort of the, the big news uh, that's come out on this recently at the time of recording is that uh, Yasunori Mitsuda, um, who is the composer for Chrono Trigger, Gears, and Shadow Hearts. I didn't realize you did Shadow Hearts as well. Uh, either did um, I. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's joining the main composer, Eric W. Brown, in developing some original music for the game. So there should be some sort of uh, excellent uh, Mitsuda Chrono Trigger-style beats in there. And the, the interesting thing about this... Um, is that it, it? Sounds like he sort of approached them because he saw um, the the trailers and the uh, and, and sort of the artwork for the game. And uh, his quote is: "Without knowing exactly why, I want to write music for this game." Is the feeling I had while seeing it convey the nostalgic golden age of the '90s. Although there are still many games being released with this classic style, I don't think players are satisfied with just nostalgia. As seen in their previous game by adding new systems and ideas to classic formulas, Sabotage Studio breathes fresh new air into their work. Um, yeah, so this is very exciting if you're a, a fan of his previous work. And uh, again, if you're not, we probably don't want to know you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed. This ga- like I, this, is what another one of those Kickstarters where I like to just put the page up and watch the numbers climb. Yeah. Like in real time, because the goal... The goal was ninety four thousand dollars. Yeah. So just short of a hundred thousand dollars, it is now at one point one four two mil. Nice. <laughs> so <laughs> People love the messenger.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen lots of lots of sort of positive words about it, and sort of lots of YouTubers have done playthroughs of it and enthusiastic reviews and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's a pretty widely beloved game from what I've seen.
1: And it needs to be said that there—oh, well, it doesn't need to be said because by the time this uh, this was published, the two hours to go on the campaign will have expired. Um, Mm -hmm. But there was a physical buy-in option. Yeah. So so I leapt on that, but I'm, I'm sure Limited Run will will press a non like a non like backer edition at some point later yes they've established, so. they've established that relationship now
0: yeah yeah okay uh continuing on uh we've got a new um dungeon crawler from experience uh is coming in june of 2020 it's called uh yumi sakuhana um which uh something dark something flowers <laughs> something like that that's the limit of my japanese at the minute uh, but yeah this is a dystopian dungeon rpg um and it's yeah i i kind of like the art in this i mean it, yeah it, it, cool art, cool art in experience stuff is is kind of a given but this is this is a bit of a shift from their normal anime style inspired style this is yes. really sort of um I don't know. Yeah how how would you describe this?
1: Uh, it's like sepia toned, and because yeah. because the whole thing is that the, it's it's got like an old school like component to it, where it's like old timey. Um, yeah. According to the description, you become an employee of a company that manage that manages undernauts, which are underground miners that are hired by illegal means. So it has like almost like a i don't want to say like steampunky, but like or like old western-y like like there's a kid in the screenshots with a pith helmet on yeah like like that that's the kind of like look it's going for and like the character portraits are like pictures that are like in the battle sequences it's pictures and there's tape on the corners like they're like yeah. tape. it's like yeah. tape like this whole thing has this very like old timey like ring a ding ding like feeling to yeah. it with like the sepia tones and like the, the washed color palette. Um and I just yeah. I just can't wait to see like aesthetically how this carries out for like the rest of the game. Yeah,
0: this is kind of sort of sort of giving me a kind of um, almost Lovecraftian vibe. Uh, a lot of Lovecraft-themed uh, games kind of have this, yeah. this kind of aesthetic, especially with the, with the sort of uh, the the old-time photographs and the sepia tones and that sort of thing. Yeah, typewriters um,
1: and rotary phones and. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, but again, it's got a sort of it's got a sort of distinct bit of uh, of Japanese flair to it as well, so that, that distinguishes itself. Yeah, it's very cool though, and sort of all the all the enemy sprites they have the sort of the characteristic huge level of detail that Experiences stuff always has. So yeah, they're, they're yeah amazing. that'll be interesting to see. So that's that's launching on Xbox One in Japan um, on June the eleventh of twenty twenty, and then PlayStation Four and Switch versions will be coming in the winter. Yeah, I haven't given dates for that yet, but they they are coming. So. Um, if you want to play uh, play this on a platform that is uh, kind of more associated with Dungeon Crawlers, then uh, you can do. All right. Uh, continuing on, um, a few other little bits and pieces I, I spotted today. In fact, a oh, one that was quite interesting. Have you have you been following the drama over the new Cooking Mama game?
1: Oh yeah, how it's uh, corporate, <laughs> a corporate corporate virus that's going to steal your <laughs> personal information. <laughs>
0: Well, there's, there's yeah. been there's been all sorts of weird stuff going on with this. So so basically, like early early reports came out that um, this game had some sort of DRM in it. There was actually like mining cryptocurrency for you or that sort of thing. And obviously, that was quick to get denied. Um, but then earlier this week, uh, there was a statement from uh, Office Create, who are the owners of the Cooking Mama IP. Um where they they basically said that Planet Entertainment, who are the people who made Cooking Mama Cookstar, they they sort of had it licensed out to them. Uh they they basically released this game without being allowed to. Um Oh, wow, I hadn't heard any of that. I had just been yeah. following
1: up on the the whole like cryptocurrency like underground like program running while you play it thing. I didn't even realise now there was licensing issues.
0: Yeah. So, so the, so the wording from this press release here: There was in August 2018, Office Create licensed Planet to develop the Cooking Mama Cookstar game for Nintendo Switch. Unfortunately, the quality of the game builds failed to meet the standards that our customers expect and deserve. Office Create rejected a wide range of deficiencies affecting the overall feel, quality, and content of the content of the game. Yet, despite being contractually obliged to correct the identified deficiencies and resubmit the corrected game for Office Create's approval, Planet proceeded to release Cooking Mama Cookstar without addressing all of the rejections. And without Office Create's approval, we've also learned that Planet andor its European distributor has been promoting an upcoming European release of a PS4 version of Cooking Mama Cookstar. Office Create is not licensed Planet or any other entity to create any Cooking Mama games for PS4. Office Create itself has not been involved in the development of any PS4 Cooking Mama game. Um, yeah, so so Planet has basically basically had its license revoked because of this um so there's there's been all that all, lots of sort of back and forth on twitter with a sort of very respectful but acidic uh <laughs> legal language going on it's like we we wish them all the best in their future endeavors and that sort of thing but yeah it's been a real mess this has so
1: cooking mama of all things
0: yeah yeah <laughs>
1: like, oh. <laughs> like people still play cooking mom Ma- like i don't like cooking mama was like shovelware for the ds
0: <laughs> and like and yet
1: it still persists like i don't understand
0: there's a lot of people who really love it i know i know a lot of people really like the wii version um and yeah there's it, it's it, it's it's survived with good reason from what i understand but uh, it's
1: cute but like yeah of all things like a corporate yeah, well, a corporate espionage and like license revocation like battle going on over cooking yeah. mama
0: yeah absolute bonkers Alright, a couple more things to share before we move on then. Um recently uh Famitsu and Dengeki did their Game Awards, um, which was um for games released in twenty nineteen. So uh, a bunch of relatively predictable stuff in here, but it's interesting sort of the contrast with these awards and uh Western awards things. So um the complete list of winners which uh GSFP over at Twinfinite posted, uh, because apparently no one else had. Um so Death Stranding got quite a few awards. Um, Hideo, Ko- Hideo Kojima got the Most Valuable Creator Award. Uh, and Death Stranding got four awards, including Best Rookie, whatever that means. Uh, presumably, like, Best Debut Title or something like that. Uh, Best Action Adventure, Best Graphics and Best Character. Uh, other noteworthy stuff in there, Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringers got Best Online Game, um, which um, a lot of people kind of felt that Final Fantasy XIV had been a bit robbed in other uh, award ceremonies last year, especially with how good Shadowbringers supposedly is. I haven't played it yet, but uh, Shadowbringers in particular is supposed to be an excellent expansion. Um, Pokemon Sword and Shield had a pretty strong showing as well. It was voted Best RPG and Game of the Year as well, uh, which is certainly a big contrast from all the whining about it that there's been over here in the West. Um, <laughs> Persona 5 Royal got uh, Best Music. Um, and uh the upcoming vanillaware 13 Sentinels, Aegis Rim, uh, got best adventure, best scenario, and I'm sure it got something else as well. Uh No, maybe just two. Um but yeah, that that's that seems probably. to have been very very That seems to have been very well received, certainly. So yeah, some some good results for uh, Japanese games as you might expect there. Uh, and then final thing i've got to share just a quickie uh, a little while back uh, arc system works released that huge kunio-kun bundle on uh, nintendo eShop. Um, no word on the physical releases yet so i've been holding off buying that but um, yeah they, they are seemingly starting to release uh, standalone versions of some of the games out there so at the time of recording you can get double dragon one two and three renegade river city ransom crash and the boys street challenge and super dodgeball uh available separately um they're about five dollars each um which which would actually work out more expensive than buying the bundle if you ended up buying all of the games uh but if you do just want a specific game you can buy it separately now and these versions do include the um the, the enhanced versions that are in the bundle as well so you can play the original nes version or the version with uh with improved graphics and sound and that sort of thing cool all right uh i think that's that's me done for news uh anything else you want to share before we move on no
1: that's it strange
0: times yes yes indeed uh we've still got half an hour news out of it so that's all right all right let's take a short break then and then we'll come back and talk about what we've been playing recently so we'll see you in a moment Welcome back. For our second segment, we're going to talk about what we've been playing recently. So, um, in theory, with our time off, we should have had uh, plenty of time to play things, but I know Chris has already said he's been keeping very busy with work and so on. So, do you want to share what you've been up to lately then, Chris?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we'll probably touch on what we've been playing the most on our next segment. I think we've probably both been mostly hammering away at FF7 Remake. Um, But I also um, got Persona 5 Royal. Which mm-hmm. um, is my first experience with Persona Five. I, yep. I did not. I did not play the original version of Persona Five because Persona Three and Persona Four taught me that if I just waited, <laughs> 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 there there was gonna be another version with more content. So I never. I never played the original version of Persona Five. And like, oh boy, do I like this game. Ah, um, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, like there was like, I I wasn't hyped up for years and years and, like, reading and understanding, like, the immense outpouring of love from the fan community and thinking this was not a game of the utmost quality. But, dear lord, Mm. Persona 5 is designed within an inch of its life.
2: Yeah. Like,
1: aesthetically, mechanically, presentation-wise, visually, orally, like, it may be... One of, if not the most comprehensively produced games I've ever got my hands on.
0: Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. It is one of the most beautiful looking games I've ever seen. And the poster boy for me, that art style will always, always, always trump photorealism.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, technically, it's a PS3 game. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it looks amazing because of the stylized presentation. Well, it's just, like, I think a lot of people discount, um, like, production as a value. Yeah. Like, the idea of, like, production as a comprehensive concept, wherein you build your piece of art, be it a game, a film, uh, an album, whatever, as as a comprehensive contained thing with a very specific identity. And, Mm -hmm. like, Persona 5's adherence to its own specific um identity which is just the the core concept of like cool spy films from like the 60s like the, the 30s 40s 50s 60s like that era where like being a spy was something people thought about and yeah. like in and like the inspiration from like the old loop on the third anime like the the idea of like a goofy bumbling group of like good-hearted spies and thieves like yeah. it's i've always loved that so like to me like persona 5 just directed like straight at my heartstrings because like i have been a lupon fan for like most of my life um so just everything about it like there's elements of like tokusatsu heroism like plucky teenagers who transform into cool costumes to like right wrongs and I just think politically and, like, ethically, like, the narrative is so spot-on for, like, the times we're facing right now. Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. definitely. It's just
1: just literally everything about it is spot-on. The music is perfect. The characters are endearing. And mechanically, it's... Nobody told me that Persona 5 was, like, PS1-era Metal Gear with turn-based combat. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, I knew there were... Like, but, like, when I read articles from people who don't know how to discuss mechanics, it was, like, light stealth elements. Like, no, there's, like, sticky cover mechanics. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it is a stealth game, and then turn-based combat on top of that, and monster collecting, and charming visual novel-style social interactions. Like, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and. Like... I can't believe how like enthralled I am by this game. And an FF7 yeah. remake had to come out, and I was like, see you later! <laughs> <laughs> but but, yeah. but I'll, I'll get back to Persona.
0: Yeah. Persona 5 will, will keep you busy for a while. I mean, even, even if it takes you a while to get through it. I mean, it took me a year to get through it, because um it was w- one of the games that my wife enjoyed watching me play so i only played oh. it when she wasn't playing like final fantasy 14 or something so which which is fairly infrequently um <laughs> so so yeah it took us a year to get through it but we got through it in the end uh, and i really enjoyed it um yeah. i will probably check out royal at some point because i'm interested to see the new stuff yeah the which new is girl is really re- cool yeah, new girl's really good. Apparently the new sort of um, semester of story content is pretty neat as well, so uh, looking forward to, to, to seeing that at some point in the future, but it's very much something I will have to make time for. But And uh, like,
1: I, I obviously, I didn't play the original, but like, from what I understand, there's significant improvements to the Memento's dungeons. Oh, okay. To yeah. make them like less boring or like more interesting, yeah. like... Because, I mean, uh, for people who maybe have played a previous Personas but not Persona 5, the Memento's Dungeons essentially takes the dungeon crawling of Persona 3 and 4 and just throws an extra game you can play in Persona 5. It's yeah. so, like yeah. if you don't want to play... Like, the story-central dungeons of Persona 5 are like very modernized with these stealth mechanics because of the thief aspect of the narrative. But the Memento's Dungeons, which you can go into for side quests and grinding... Are just the same. Are just classic randomly generated dungeon crawls. Yeah, yeah. So that's there too. It's like a game within a game. It's it's Mm -hmm. unreal how like comprehensive and robust the package Persona Five is. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm really
0: pleased you're you're enjoying this um, because I I don't think we've 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 sort of talked about this here on the podcast before, but uh, certainly you you went through a, a while where. Um, you weren't a big fan of sort of very talking-heavy RPGs, were you? And Persona 5 is extremely narrative-heavy. There are, there are often sort of sequences of like two hours or more where you don't do anything other than witness dialogue sequences. Um, and so, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that you're enjoying these things because although those sequences are, are lengthy and I can understand why, um, why some people might prefer to get into the action a bit more quickly, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that you're enjoying those.
1: I mean, like, I have varying degrees, right, of like how and where and when I find like super talky games acceptable at, Mm -hmm. but like a lot of my reasons for not liking them in the past were largely related to like my living situation. Like, yeah. Yeah. uh, When I, when I was married, I, uh, my wife was just on the TV all the time. So like, I, and like we have a very, had a very small living space. So like, I could never go anywhere to concentrate on talk heavy games. Like I was always just like in a corner somewhere with my Vita, like trying to muddle through text while also the TV was blaring like 15 feet away from me. Like now that that's not part of my life and I can actually like immerse myself in reading. Like I'm a man, I'm a person who reads books a lot. So, yep. like, theoretically, there's nothing about that text heavy presentation that's bad for me. It was just like, I lived in a situation where it was very difficult for me to immerse myself in and enjoy them properly. Yeah. Like, yeah. now that I can, like, I'm, I'm much more open to those experiences. And especially in a game like Persona, where the, the narrative and the text heavy components are tied directly to the more traditional gameplay mechanics. Yes, like, I'm, yes. I'm still not open to visual novels as a concept, Mm-mm. because I would rather just read a book. Yes. But like, yeah. but a game, like, persona that's very talky, but those relationships then reflect the gameplay mechanics, and then it ties it to the gaminess in a way that makes sense, I'm mm-hmm. much more open to. Same with the Trails series. Like, I used to be yeah. not super big on the Trails series, because there's a lot of dialogue. But, like, now I'm more equipped to, to enjoy those as an immersive experience, so I'm yeah. looking forward to revisiting them
0: yeah yeah definitely definitely they, they are games that sort of demand your attention and, and i mean it's just like other kinds of media isn't it where there's there's some things you can just sort of put on in the background and chill out with and then there's other things that you really need to engage with fully in order to appreciate them and yeah this sort of experience very much falls into that latter category
1: essentially and deserves my full attention and i if i yeah. couldn't if i couldn't have given it to her i wasn't even <laughs> going to try to play it
0: uh Anne, eh? I thought I thought you'd be more of a Makoto person, but I uh, haven't we'll met say. Makoto yet. So ah, right. Okay. <laughs> so,
1: so listen, like right now, all I have is Anne. Oh, fair enough. And fair enough. Anne is, and right. Anne is perfect enough. <laughs> so, so like, I don't know. Like, I I have a feeling I'm gonna be a Haru person.
0: Oh yeah, maybe maybe.
1: Um, because like I, I aesthetically, I'm definitely a Makoto person, but like yeah. I'm not really, like, super into the whole, like, I'm class president, like, I'm best at everything girl, so, like, I don't know, I don't know how it's gonna feel, like, I, I, what I know about, like, Haru, just from, like, reading wikis and stuff, I think she's probably, from a personality standpoint more, who I'm gonna, like, gravitate towards, but.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: But we yeah, shall see. Cool. There's plenty, yeah, plenty, lots of discovery. All that matters now is that I want Morgana to be my best friend. Yes, um, yes. I love Morgana so much. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna buy the I'm gonna buy the Nendoroid because it comes with the swivel chair and the cigar. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the best. I just want to live my life like Persona Five and have a talking cat spy friend. Who lives in my bag and just like is my buddy and like <laughs> co- like helps me like like now is a good time to read like you know what talking cat friend it is total I should totally use this opportunity to read and better myself like I need that don't, don't we all need that like talking yeah. cat thief friend definitely I don't know. Morgana's the best Yep. I- I'm like super smitten with this game
0: Uh I'm I'm so glad to hear that yeah cool anything else you've been up to then besides that.
1: Not really, man. FF Seven Remake and Persona, like, well, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, what else is there time for? Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, absolutely. The only other thing I'm doing besides playing FF FF Seven Remake and Persona is like consistently checking the evercade websites and social medias (laughs) to like make sure we hopefully get our evercades in may like if that counts as an activity i'm dedicating a lot of time to
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh, like i said you offline before we started recording um they have pretty much confirmed may the 22nd of 2020 as the the release date for it so barring anything absolutely disastrous happening uh, we should get them by by then and uh, a lot of review units have gone out recently as well so it looks like they they should be on track for that so
1: there's definitely a couple episodes in that thing for us
0: oh god yeah yeah definitely definitely uh, i i i've set myself the the target of writing about all the games uh, that are on those collections because i went for the all-in bundle uh, plus the technos collection that they announced after the uh, the system was announced so i'm going to try and cover everything over time as well because that will keep me in things to write about for ages while i'm continuing oh. to play the atelier games as well so
1: technically like what's the count technically if you consider every game on each cartridge collection i think this is a console that's launching with over 120 games
2: yeah yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like you, like you know i was saying like, you know i had a friend who was skeptical about it and they were like uh, well what if it fails it's like you don't understand it doesn't matter if it fails yeah the, lo- the yeah. launch lineup is significant yeah like if, if yeah, they never it, printed it, another cartridge again
0: yeah exactly if, they, if if they if they don't release anything beyond this launch lineup you've got 120 games to play
1: <laughs> yeah it doesn't matter it, it doesn't yeah. matter it could fail i mean i hope it doesn't fail because i want to get my hands on that atari Lynx collection yeah. but um yeah it doesn't matter if they never print another cartridge besides the initial launch lineup of 10 carts like yeah. you're set who could ever yeah. need any more
0: and they've they've already confirmed um, that they're going to release four additional cartridges this year. So, t- so two of them have been announced already. Is so that there's the Atari Lynx bundle, and the double pack of Xenocrisis and Tanglewood. Um, they've signed a third, but they haven't announced it yet. Uh, and they apparently have lots of options for the fourth. So there's, they're they're aiming to do four more besides uh, what is currently available for pre-order in the rest of this year. So,
1: oh, and I hope the Atari Lynx is full. <laughs> The Atari Lynx is definitely dubbed Volume One, right? Like, there's going to yeah, be more yeah. Lynx carts. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. Oh, sorry for the distraction. I just think. Oh about no, this no, thing. no! I think about no, this thing ab- constantly.
0: It's absolutely fine. I am super excited for this as well. So, um, yeah, you can expect a, a lot of coverage of this on uh, Moe Gamer when it finally is in my hands.
1: I'm already pricing like. 12 foot hdmi cables so i can like run, <laughs> so i can like run it to my tv
0: yeah yeah i will have to do the same as well because i want to capture footage and screenshots and stuff from it so yes yes all right uh so what have i been up to i've been playing final fantasy 7 remake as well but uh, like we said we'll probably talk about that in our third segment so um i can say a few things about some of the other things i've been playing lately um so on over on moegaming.net the Atelier mega feature is continuing at present uh i'm up to atelier iris 3 grand phantasm now uh, which is which is a, a really interesting game actually it's um it, it, it feels quite different from the first two atelier iris games in quite a few ways uh probably most notable for me is the soundtrack because the the soundtrack for atelier iris 3 sounds a lot more like uh the more recent atelier games there's oh, just okay. something there's just something about the instrumentation that's used in it sounds very much like the soundtracks of um atelier rorana in particular. Um, there's this distinctive sort of uh, combination of um, there's like harmonica and uh, sort of guitar and I, I guess it's it, it, it sounds sort of like 1970 synth I guess um, mm. well, you that's had me a harmonica. Quite heavy. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's there's definitely a very distinctive. Um, Audible feel to the soundtrack uh, that is very distinctive and that I associate very much with the Atelier series specifically uh, in Atelier RS3 that that I really like. Um, The structure is very different um, to the previous two, although the previous two games are quite different structures to each other already. Um, This one is very hub based, so in some ways it's quite similar to both the older and the newer Atelier games in that you have a central location that you radiate out from rather than a journey. Uh, it's very quest-based. Um, it's almost—I'd um, almost say it's—it's it, it's almost kind of MMO-ish in structure, um, but specifically um, older MMOs like uh, Final Fantasy XI and stuff. In that, it's all about uh, doing a bunch of stuff to build up um, points, and then when you've got enough points, that triggers like a major story mission which is basically the exact structure that final fantasy 11 has um and so yeah I, I i like that structure because none of these quests really feel like throwaway quests either each of the smaller quests that lead up to the major story missions they have sort of significant narrative and mechanical content in them as well so like some will introduce the tools that you can use to um, clear certain obstacles out of the way some will introduce characters some will provide iris with new recipes to make in the alchemy workshop and that sort of thing so everything you do in this game feels meaningful which is always a always a good thing in an rpg Mm -hmm. um i really like the combat system in this there's um it's kind of i i don't know it's kind of hard to describe i want to say it's fighting game inspired um but not in no, not in terms of uh, sort of direct mechanical execution, but in terms of sort of presentation and stuff. So, the, the core of Atelier Iris 3's combat is that uh, you have this bar in the corner of the screen called the burst bar. Uh, and basically, every attack that you do in Atelier Iris 3 tends to have more than one hit. And every hit uh, adds to this burst bar in the corner. And, like, if you hit an elemental weakness, it will add more to the burst bar than it would do if, you, if you're hitting something that they're resistant against and when you fill the burst bar you get this sort of wonderfully satisfying explosive sound <laughs> and like the word burst appears in massive letters on the screen very similarly to how um fever shows up in lapis labyrinth and like the background goes all swirly and while that is going on um every attack you land adds to like a, a combo counter and if you the higher you build that combo counter the more experience points and uh, sort of job progression points you get at the end of combat as well so it's very much about um even in sort of like the more random combats along the way it's very much about sort of trying to finish combats as stylishly as possible and i, I really like that side of things especially in a turn-based game because it's it's so easy for turn-based games to sort of degenerate into just mashing the attack button over and over again and sort of grinding your way through it but this system makes it feel like most combats are again meaningful they give you something to do something to aim for and you get a, a direct benefit from it you put pro- you progress more quickly if you engage fully with that system so yeah i i really like that side of things so
1: i really enjoy too how like aesthetically and thematically like it's you iris 3 has this weird like era of like tongue-in-cheek like faux badassness (laughs) which is like not which is like not part of like normal atelier games yeah like like you were to say like burst and like flaming and like your like main character is like a like a sassy mercenary with like a a mechanical sword that like transforms into like a chainsaw like the main
0: character is literally called edge
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 it's, it's it's all very like like ooh, this is the badass Intellijear game, but like they still don't know how to do it. Like it's still like cozy and sweet, but like also bursts and like chainsaws oh, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's it's it's
0: it's totally deliberate. I It's, it's got to be totally deliberate because you've got. Oh yeah, there's no Because doubt. you've got this ridiculous sort of attempts at badass side of things, and it, and then you've got Nell, who is just the most adorable character ever,
1: with the most massive tits I've ever seen in a Gust game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's abnormal for a Gust. There's that new girl in the, in Ryza, that, like, Dark Knight girl. Yeah. yeah. She's a little out of control. Yeah,
0: yeah but um yeah there's one thing I, I really like about the iris series as a whole is there's there's quite a strong 90s anime feel to it yeah I, I, I guess sort of early 2000s anime would probably be more accurate but i sort of associate a lot of the like the facial expressions and stuff and the style of some of the characters very much with sort of 90s anime sort of the very exaggerated expressions and that sort of thing and it's it's just a really sort of pleasing aesthetic to the the character design and stuff so um but yeah it's 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 a lovely looking game actually it's um the 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 2d backdrops are, are really lovely uh, they sort of really mastered the uh the combination of sort of isometric block based um construction with lovely 2d art overlaid on the top of it it actually reminds me quite a bit of some of the mana games in some ways uh which is i mm-hmm. guess sort of appropriate given the atelier iris uh Sort of being based around mana spirits and that sort of thing, but just kind of the color palette and the the detail in the forest scenes in particular. So well, yeah, it feels very very mana ish to me.
1: Yeah, this is peak two D ghost. Yeah. yeah, like tele Iris Three, monochemia and um, Artanelico Two yes. are just yeah. like peak two D ghost. Yeah.
0: yeah, beautiful games, beautiful games all right uh besides that um i have also been playing uh disaster report four um so disaster report four is uh not the most beautiful game you will ever see by any means um (laughs) it is running on unreal engine 4 badly and um it from a technical perspective it's an absolute mess but from narrative and mechanical perspective it's one of the most fascinating games i played for a long time Um, so if you're not familiar, Disaster Report is a series that was originally created by Irem, uh, back in the PS2 era, and, um, I guess you'd call them survival horror in some ways, except it's not sort of survival horror against monsters and zombies and that sort of thing, it's survival horror against sort of things collapsing and exploding and natural disasters and that sort of thing. Um, Disaster Report 4 is kind of almost, uh, really tones down that side of things uh so the 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 actual earthquake that is the catalyst for the whole experience sort of it happens every so often and you get aftershocks and you have to deal with them and make sure you don't fall into the water and drown and or have buildings fall on you and that sort of thing but for the most part it's a game about exploring the different ways that people respond to these disasters and it's a really fascinating exploration of how a situation like a major earthquake in a big city brings out both the best and worst in humanity um and that includes the player character as well so you you can you can play through this game as an absolute piece of shit if you want to um and uh, or, or you can you can help people out as you go through and they they tend not to be binary choices either which is nice. So generally when something happens, you'll have a choice of like five or six or seven different dialogue options to choose from on how you respond to things. Some of them will do the same thing, but the interesting thing about them from, um, kind of a a storytelling artistic narrative perspective is that it makes you think about the context of what is going on and how your character is responding to them. And I think that's, that's a big part of the point of this game is to, is to make you think about the situation. Um, and like I say, it doesn't necessarily have a direct mechanical impact on what's going on, or even change the direction of the story in some cases. But the fact that you chose a specific option on how to react to that situation, and sort of decided that your inner monologue at that point was going to going to think this specific thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And... Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of interesting stories to follow through. It's quite replayable as well because there's there's things you can miss and sort of different routes you can go down and different choices you can make and that kind of thing. Um, the version we've got over here is actually a port of uh, a slightly later version that includes what was some DLC for the original version that came out in 2018, I think. So there's a lengthy epilogue scenario in there that basically kind of ties up all the loose ends that were left by the story. And also has the kind of helpful function of, uh, of pointing out things you might have missed as well, because it, the epilogue basically assumes that you did all of the side stories in the main game. So if you play through that and you come across some characters that you didn't encounter in the main story, you can think, oh, OK, right. I can replay that and I can specifically look out for this character second time around, um, which is quite interesting. Um, That's cool. But yeah, it's 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 a really cool game. So as long as you can look past the atrocious frame rates and the fuzzy Unreal Engine four graphics and that sort of thing, it is very much a worthwhile experience that I would I would recommend you 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 enjoy at some point.
1: Yeah, I, I remember too. It's like when I uh, when I talked about Destiny Connect. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes these Japanese companies, especially on, on the Switch with Unreal uh-huh. Engine, really just. Maybe pick a different. End. <laughs> Maybe. I,
0: well, apparently, this game runs like shit on PS4 as well. So it's it's does yeah, it? So okay. it's not just the, it's okay. not just the Switch version in this case. Although oh, the, Switch, okay. the Switch version is probably worse. There, there are points in this game uh, where you can literally count the frames by eye. <laughs> ooh, ooh, although they ooh. although they they did put out a patch shortly after launch that does improve it very slightly. It it's still it's still janky as hell, but. You know, it's, it's part.
1: It, but does the PS4 version have like the Vaseline smear? I don't know. I, don't know. I haven't
0: <laughs> tried it. There, there are demos of both the switch and the PS4 version. So you can, you can give them a go for yourself and see if one is uh, preferable to the other. And that should hopefully give you an idea of how they perform on both platforms. So, but, but like I say, th- this is one of those games where I know, I know people care about frame rate and resolution and that sort of thing these days. And, but in this game, the frame rate doesn't really affect the gameplay as such um it's sure. it's all about sort of immersing yourself in this world and it's a wonderfully immersive world to explore with lots of lots and lots of detail um and that's the main thing that's the thing that that, that kept me playing um sort of for, for hours at a time it was it was just such a, a compelling interesting yeah. game that i I played it for hours at a time and just loved it so yeah give it a chance i say. all right uh Appley. i think that's probably everything i want to talk about besides final fantasy 7 remake so we'll save that for the next segment so anything else you want to bring up before we finish no sir Alrighty, let's take a short break then and then we'll come back and we will talk about remakes so
1: see
2: you in a moment yeah <laughs> <laughs> Welcome
0: back for our third segment we thought we'd talk a bit about remakes uh because at the time of recording final fantasy 7 remake has just released and raised uh, a lot of interesting questions and discussions and things and uh of course, some some people ranting and raving as they do on the internet as well. But um, we thought we would uh, talk a bit more generally about remakes over the years and various examples that we've come across. Uh, Final Fantasy VII will almost certainly enter the conversation at some point as well. Um, but we want to talk about the concept sort of generally as well about why you might do it what different approaches there are different challenges that people have faced along the way um so yeah we've both got some some things that we we want to talk about on this topic so um i thought if we do if we just start with um the question of uh why you would want to remake things in the first place um i've i've put four points uh for this that you can you may or may not be able to add to so the four things i put down for reasons that people might want to remake things are to uh firstly to better realize creative visions that were originally constrained in some way whether that was through budget or technology or the experience level of the developers um second one to bring things to a new audience so something that came out 20 years ago um if you remake it you can bring it to a current audience as well who, who maybe wasn't around for it first time um you've got kind of the opposite of that as well which is to cash in on nostalgia so for those people who were around 20 years ago for the original um you can you can do a remake to kind of really stir those feelings of nostalgia in people uh, and then finally um the final point i put was to explore something further or in more detail than the original version provided um so if you got any more thoughts on why why remakes are a thing in the first place yeah i mean
1: nothing that's kind of too different from what you said but like also Mm -hmm. i just feel like um another aspect would just be uh, artistic vision and like creative aspects so like Yeah. yeah like what we're seeing with um not just in terms of like improvement or to extrapolate or to focus more but like to to change you know i think a part of what can make a remake great is changing it's yeah obviously one of the things that people also get the angriest about on the internet but like when i was conceiving of the notion of a remake um i do what i normally did which was kind of like go back into myself and to my experiences studying popular culture as uh, an overarching um like societal thing and like when you really think about the concept of a remake as we consider it in the gaming sphere uh, the idea of a remake within popular culture is not anything is not unique to games at all right if oh, no, you th- no. if you think about the music industry think about covers yeah so like yeah. why why does a band make a cover because a they love the original song and they want to celebrate it And B, they want to take their personality, their skills, and their artistic vision and apply it and see how they can reinterpret and represent something they love with their skill set and their vision. Mm -hmm. So I think that type of artistic approach where you're not just remaking or improving or expanding, but also occasionally changing... Um, yeah a a remake doesn't necessarily even have to be a celebration you could make a remake that's um, a critical teardown of something a commentary Mm -hmm. or a parody Um, there's a lot of space there to explore what a remake can be in like new creative ways and that's something that's persisted in television film um, uh, video games music everything think about that you know uh everyone loves jojo's bizarre adventure right now and but like the the stardust crusaders arc has been remade twice anime wise yeah. with yeah, with, and, with kind of new from, levels of vision new new approaches
0: and there are people who still hate that arc <laughs>
1: yeah yeah so but like it's 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 a concept that per- persists in arts and entertainment um and so the creative vision and and new artistic interpretations is also a really important aspect of that, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so I, I mean I've um, I, I've sort of looked through my past experience with some games and, and thought about some different ways that people have approached it over the years. And this is looking right back to um, sort of the even into the eighties, like the eight bit home computing era. Absolutely. And And I came up with probably six different approaches that people might take to remakes. Again, there may be more of these, but these are the ones that sort of came off the top of my head when I was thinking about what we were gonna talk about here. So the first one I've got um, is a complete rewrite of the game's code, uh, but the exact same game structure and mechanics. An example I've got in mind for this is uh, a very old game called Temple of Apshai. Mm. Uh, which uh, I've covered on my Atari A to Z series on YouTube. So Temple of Apshai was one of the first uh, home computer role-playing games. It was put out by a company called Epix. Um, And the original version of it was written in BASIC, so it ran very, very slowly. Um, And it also didn't have features that we take for granted in uh, sort of role-playing and adventure games today. Like it had no save game system, for one. Uh, but it did have the ability to sort of continue a past game by literally writing down all of your stats including your experience points and your equipment and stuff and then when you started playing the game again you would you would type all that stuff back in and you'd be able to pick up where you left off that was in the original version so about i think it was about five or six years later after the original temple of apshai had had uh two expansion packs Uh, They released a package called the Temple of Apshai Trilogy, which incorporated both the original Temple of Apshai game and its two expansions into one version on floppy disk. And what they did here is they took the opportunity not to just do a re-release, but they completely rewrote the whole game. So they, instead of writing it in basic, they wrote it in machine code, so it ran a lot faster. And they took the opportunity to actually put in some file handling in there as well, so you could now save your game, you could save your characters and that sort of thing. Um, but at its core, the mechanics of the game were exactly the same. The structure of the game was exactly the same. It was still this fascinating take uh, take on kind of computer-assisted role-playing, I guess you'd call it. So Temple of Apshaya, if you've not come across it before, you, you play the game on the screen, but there's also like numerical prompts that you'll get, um, things like room numbers and treasure numbers and so on. And when they come up, you have to read from a book so you enter room number one and you read the passage from the book about room number one and they kept that in temple of Apshai trilogy despite the fact that their improved experience with developing for home computers and the additional storage space they can use on floppy disk and that sort of thing would have allowed them to put a lot of that text in the game they still kept it this same experience it was just delicious yeah it was just a better version of that same experience so there's now no real reason to play the original release of Temple of Apshai because you can have a better version of that base experience without any sort of tweaks to it, aside from making it perform better in the form of Temple of Apshai Trilogy. So that's, that's sort of one example. So you keep the same game, but you, you, you rewrite it so that it's better. Um, second one I've got is porting a game to a more powerful platform um and again i'm looking back to the 80s for this one uh so back in the 80s uh there was a game released uh called alternate reality the city i don't know if you've heard of this before but no. sort of legend legend has it that this game um was the direct inspiration for the matrix i don't know if that's true or not but uh, supposedly that's what sort of uh, urban myth has it so in alternate reality uh what happens is that you are abducted from earth and taken to an alien planet and this alien planet um is set up in such a way that it 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 seems to resemble a medieval city on earth so you're exploring this city um you're just trying to survive that's this was one of the first ever open world freeform games that i ever saw there was no concrete objective in it you just had to wander around the city and uh acquire yourself some weapons and armor you could get a job you could um join various guilds and improve your skills and so on but there was no sort of concrete objective you just sort of um you just sort of played and and saw how far you could get without dying and the grand plan for the series was to release a bunch of additional expansions for that that would ultimately lead you to escaping the alien planet and it was the it was these last um the the last two parts that never never got released uh, were what supposedly inspired the Matrix. is It was supposed to be that uh, the whole thing was like a big simulation and you you would break out the simulation and you would see uh, sort of everyone in all these pods and everything like that. And you would then explore like the, the real world that you'd been captured into and that sort of thing. That never happened uh, for various reasons. I, I mean, it was mostly the fact it was a bit too ambitious. Um, but one of the interesting things about this is that... Um, alternate reality the city and its follow-up the dungeon they both got ported to 16-bit home computers the atari st and the amiga um and that had a very positive effect on these games because on the original atari 8-bit version it came on two floppy disks um with stuff on both sides of them and so as you were playing this game you were constantly swapping discs turning discs over please insert disc two side b and all that sort of thing whereas the whole thing fit on one floppy disk for the atari st and amiga Mm -hmm. so you could just bung the disc in and just play it Um, and again they kept the exact same game structure and mechanics improved the graphics improved the sound and all that sort of thing it was the same game but porting it to a more powerful platform made it feel like a a very different experience. So that's uh, that's sort of the second approach uh, that I've put down. The third one we've got is uh, HD remasters, which is probably the simplest approach you can take to a remake, which is taking an original game and then basically just re-releasing it for a new platform. It's not necessarily making it run better or anything like that. It is just remastering it for a new audience.
1: Yeah, i don't even know if i count that amongst what we're talking about here yeah like, to, no, to, I w- to, to me i classify a remake and a remaster as like two like separate and distinct entities right like i'm yeah, just like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, when i think of remake i think something that was made from the ground up
0: yeah yeah i i, I agree entirely I, I almost didn't put this in here but i thought it was worth acknowledging at least yeah, so i'm not going to say important. too not gonna, yeah but i'm not going to say too much more about that um next thing i put down uh was uh, plus versions with additional content over the original so uh sort of i guess the poster child for this would be the uh the first few atelier games on ps1 which all had at least two or three releases for various platforms uh, so like the original the first atelier game was released on playstation one and then it was released on saturn with uh, an additional feature where it would use the built-in clock for various things uh, and then that version was ported back to playstation and it was then later ported to dreamcast as well so each of those versions were slightly different with different ways of incorporating its content and so on but it, again it was the same game it was it was remade for each platform with in some cases um ways of taking advantage of the unique features of that platform but it was the same game and connected to that uh, we have plus versions where they revamp or improve the mechanics and visuals so again we can look at atelier for this if we look at the original atelier roraner and then atelier roraner plus uh, which basically takes the mechanics and presentation of atelier merubu and ports it back to atelier Rorina. Uh so again you've got the you, in this case you've got the same basic concept of the game but you do have actually revamped mechanics and visual presentation and that sort of thing that's 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 a good approach i like that approach because atelier Rorina um was sort of noticeably clunkier than the other two in that series Mm. and so then going back to that one and improving the way it played and bringing it more in line with the other ones um yeah that was a really positive approach i think And then finally, of course, we have a remake that is a complete reimagining of a project. And uh, obviously the poster child for that at the moment is Final Fantasy VII Remake. So, um, what have you got to, to, to add to that, if anything?
1: Yeah, I mean, just I think your kind of walkthrough of those different approaches kind of highlighted a lot of what I had to say about, like, you know nowadays people talk about like remakes and remasters and they and there's a lot of complaining occasionally that it's like yeah oh like uh can't they make new games or like it's a sign that there's like creativity's gone and like and you hear it a lot too in the film industry because like films mm-hmm. get remade or, or or changed or tweaked but um i i think to those a lot of those criticisms i say that um This has always been a part of the industry. Like, you know, a lot of the stuff you were talking about harken back to the 80s. And I think about, like, the arcade scene, and I think about classic stuff like Galaga, Space Invaders, Pac Man. Mm -hmm. A a lot of those classic games in the history of their existence have been revamped, tweaked, and re released on different platforms with different iterations. I'm not talking about sequels, right? Mm -hmm. I'm talking just about. Pac-Man or Galaga yeah. and like how many times has there been like Galaga 98 that's like mm-hmm. mechanically pretty much identical but just reprogrammed with on modern or more modern platforms with revamped visuals or slightly tweaked scoring mechanics like th- so this is not something that's new to the industry at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just driven by this notion that we can take older games and make them HD or whatever. Like, this drive to reiterate and improve on stuff that's already great is kind of intrinsically tied to gaming's history as a unique medium that combines art with science and tech. Yeah. So, um, you know, thinking back to, like, early examples that, like, I've always loved is, like, Super Castlevania Four.
2: Mm-hmm
1: is just a remake of the original Castlevania like narratively Super Castlevania 4 is Castlevania 1 like Simon's first adventure beefed up with visuals and and all the bells and whistles that the Super Nintendo had to offer all the sprite scrolling the ability to make sprites out of multiple um multiple pieces the zooming the sound effects like so this is we can see this as like an intrinsic drive in the industry back to like way early days. Yeah, um, I also always think fondly of like Ghosts and Goblins and like the Ghosts and Goblins and Super Ghouls and Ghosts. Like yeah. those are those are all remakes of the same narrative experience. Like none of those are no like remake of Ghouls and Ghosts or Ghosts and Goblins has ever been like Ghosts and Goblins two. They're yeah. always just ghosts and goblins on a different platform, on a more powerful platform, with changed visuals or new weapons added. So, like, this, this, this idea to reiterate or rebuild from the ground up and improve upon is something that's always been there for us. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's always been a lot of joy for me, like, to, to play an, the new version of Ghosts and Goblins or, or, or yeah. the, new, the new version of Castlevania. Like, how does it celebrate the thing I used to love in a new way? Doesn't subsume it or replace it; it just becomes a new way to experience it. Um, I also thought too, like historically, um, there are certain companies or, or certain platforms that have been really like houses worth highlighting for this. Um, something I think you've got a lot of experience with, and I know I've always cared about is the Ease series. Oh yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. You know, just just thinking about the original Ease one and two. Mm-hmm. Like how many times has Falcom remade and repackaged Ease One and Two?
0: I think it was at least four. I counted when I wrote about them. It was at least four different versions of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's crazy because there's there's at least at least the original. This was the original computer versions. Then there's the PC Engine versions. Mm-hmm. There's the versions that were made um, on the PS2. There's mm-hmm. the versions that were made on the DS, there's the versions that were made on the PSP, and I'm sure I'm missing more. This <laughs> yeah. like 6 by my count, versions of well, these it, one and two.
0: Yeah, and it, well the, the versions on the PSP were expanded versions of a, a version that came out on PC as well. So yeah, there's yeah. another one in there. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, and like yeah. but so those and each one of those was a ground up remake, not a port. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. So like, ease like the DS versions of Ease One and Two are like not really liked a lot because they made some mechanical tweaks that a lot of people didn't really appreciate. So Mm -hmm. it's it's almost a totally new game. Yeah. And and uh, Falcom's always been really interested in doing this. So like, I think back to to uh, Oath and Felghana. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Oath and Felghana is a remake of Ease Three using Six's engine. Yeah. And of course the poster child for this, like the most ambitious of this, is uh, Memories of Calcutta.
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: So historically, for people who aren't like huge Falcom fans, Ease um, 4 is legendarily a very bizarre entry in the series history because there were two different versions of Ease 4 on different platforms that were developed yep. by different development houses. So they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're totally different games, but they're both called Ease 4. Yeah. Um, and neither
0: of them were developed by Falcom originally.
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, what Memories of Calcutta did was it was an effort by Falcom to take um, elements they liked essentially of both of them um, and, and Falcom themselves make a definitive canonical version of Ease 4 that, that would become the version of Ease 4 using Seven's yeah. fully 3D engine. Yeah and and to take that and make essentially a remake that took two disparate games took all the best elements of them with new elements and made this ambitious action rpg Um, yeah i can't wait for the ps4 version
2: (laughs) Mm, that's a great
0: game that one
1: yeah 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 it's great so yeah like falcom have always been pretty big on on doing this um and I, i think that's really neat um I also thought very fondly back to the PSP. Mm-hmm. For some reason, the PSP was like a gold mine for this. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking like Capcom, right? They did a whole series of like 3D remakes of classic Capcom side scrollers. Yeah. So there was the the Mega Man, they did Mega Man X, as Mega Man Maverick Hunter X, was a 3D remake of the original Mega Man X. They -hmm. did Mega Man Powered Up, which was a 3D, a really stylized uh, representation of the original Mega Man, the very first one. And there was Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins, which was Mm -hmm. a a really nice polygonal Ghosts and Goblins game. Um, And then getting out of Capcom's house, there was, of course, the Dracula X Chronicles. Yep, which for yep. many people who weren't PC Engine savvy or weren't into the PC Engine CD collecting scene, it was a lot of people in the West's first opportunity to play the original um, Rondo of Blood
0: mm-hmm.
1: because what it, uh, Dracula X Chronicles was a fully 3D ground-up remake of Rondo of Blood. You could also unlock the original in it later, yep. but, it, but it was a fully 3D remake of that original game. Um, and also on the PSP was Tactics Ogre Let Us Cling Together. Mm-hmm which was a super ambitious rebuilding of the original Super Nintendo Tactics Ogre um, yep. with new features. Um, it had like a, a system that would allow you to go back in time and like revisit various plot points and see how the different choices can play out, which is yep. cool because of the way the story branches in that game. Um, and it was such a beloved project that Matsuno actually returned to Square briefly to help work on the project. Yeah. Because, like, that was his baby. So, like, it, one of the things that's great about uh, remixes and remasters is it, it gives... Um, creators the opportunity to as you mentioned before perhaps they were constrained due to budgets or tech availability or, or what have you to return to works that are super meaningful to them and perhaps present us with a better or more comprehensive vision of what they always wanted yeah. to make in the first place yeah which from an artistic perspective is a dream
0: Hmm. yeah definitely one quite interesting example i find from that regard is um sorcery saga on PSP And I think there's a PC version now as well Yes <laughs> in fact there is because I played that one on uh, my YouTube channel Didn't I But Sorcery Saga uh, Which is from uh, Idea Factory and Compile Heart uh, Is actually A remake of uh, Mado Monogatari Which is the old compiled Dungeon crawler series That is the reason Puyo Puyo exists Yeah um, But obviously Puyo Puyo belongs to Sega now um so compile heart were not able to use sort of any of the original characters or the puyo puyo stuff and, and and that sort of thing but in terms of sort of structure and narrative it is very much a modern reimagining of Madam monogatari but the interesting thing about that is they basically changed it into a different type of game as well so whereas Madam monogatari was a first person dungeon crawler uh sorcery saga is actually it's a mystery dungeon game um and so if you didn't if someone hadn't told you that it was a remake of this much older game you probably wouldn't know but for the actual creators of that game it's probably super meaningful.
1: Yeah, I mean I remember when you first told me about that and I was like blown away by it. Like I no I had no <laughs> idea cuz it's not like it was something that was like widely publicized.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's kind of that's interesting, like um, the um, the notion that we can even take games and transfer them into a different genre when we remake them. Mm-hmm. One of the examples I had um, from my collection was a, I really like the Lufia series, yeah. And um, Lufia Curse of the Sinistrals on a DS, is a remake of Lufia Two um, yeah. on the Super Nintendo. Uh, Lufia Two on the Super Nintendo is a pretty traditional turn-based role-playing game. I mean, it's it's very good, but it's just super traditional. There's not a whole heck of a lot about it that's super um, noteworthy in terms of like mechanics or innovation. It had some light Zelda-style puzzle solving and a, and a solid uh, RPG battle system. But yeah. um, Curse of the Sinistrals on the DS um, was an east style action RPG. Oh, cool. It wasn't even... <laughs> it wasn't even the same genre it was totally yeah. different but it was still the same story it was the same narrative it was the same world same characters mm-hmm. but ext- uh, obviously brought out by the better technology but the just something in them said we're, we're gonna remake Luffy 2 as an action rpg
0: yeah yeah well and- i mean i mean this is probably a good point to bring up Seven remake, isn't it? Because sure. that's basically what they've done with the mechanical side of things there. Although they haven't sort of they they haven't completely changed it into like a hack and slash action RPG, like like some people feared that they would. Yeah, w- what they've done is that they've they've provided some some more i don't know if you call them more up to date but certainly some different mechanics that combine the things that they learned from subsequent final fantasy games i was
1: gonna say it's really like a pinnacle of like evolution of like the way final fantasy has yeah, been moving exactly for the because past decade. um
0: yeah final fantasy 7 remakes combat is basically a blend of everything from 11 to 15 um there are bits of all of those games in 7 remake and, um, yeah, like, like you say, it's, it, it is sort of the pinnacle of Final Fantasy being a series of constant reinvention. The, the very concept of if it's not new, it's not Final Fantasy.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's, it's fascinating, like, as a mechanics guy to sit down and drill into, like, the elements of Seven and what came from where and, like, how did, mm-hmm. how did we get here? like yep. what did they take from 15 what didn't work in 15 that they ditched what did work in 15 that they kept what did mm-hmm. they take from 12 what did they take from the the online ones it's 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 amazing to try to track that mm. and i love it i mean the combat's so satisfying
0: <laughs> oh it's it's excellent it's excellent it's like way better than i expected it to be but it's it's super satisfying just because yeah it, like we've said it it is Bringing the best elements of all the things that they've done before, bringing what they've learned from previous games and sort of picking the best bits and then sticking them all together.
1: And like what they've done to, at least something to me that I really appreciate in it is um, as someone who likes to think really hard about like mechanics and character design, is like one of the things that's really cool about FF7 is like uh, the original FF7 is FF7 didn't have a job system, right? Nice. No didn't have a job system just like 6 before it didn't have a job system but one of the things i always loved about job systems was be- be- taking the characters designs as well as the stats and the way they perform and trying to figure out what classic ff job class each character was actually supposed to be yes right so like we know we know it now more than anything because 7 has really taken those job class classic ff job class archetypes and translated them now into an an active time action sphere so like now you get the joy of like really understanding from a cadence of rhythm movement and performance how would it feel to play as a warrior how would it feel to play as a monk how would it feel to play as a mage because like when you go from the third the party of three of having cloud bear, and Tifa, which is essentially warrior monk, Black Mage, mm-hmm. then you get into the part of the story where you lose um you lose t-fun barrett momentarily and you just have cloud and Aerith. like you have to totally relearn everything you learn by playing as yeah. t-fun barrett to control Aerith properly because she is a well, i guess barrett's more of a red mage because he can do all magic fairly well and has a, a, a strong hit um, mm-hmm. but Aerith is just a pure mage right she's useless yeah, she yeah. cannot take a hit so you have to learn magic inside and out all of a sudden to survive and there's something so mechanically delicious about the way it's taken all the classic trappings of Final Fantasy, the job class system, and the notion of different classes performing differently and having different strengths, and and mapped that to an active system. Yeah, where you yeah. have to feel those differences and understand them in order to survive.
0: Mm-hmm. I found it really interesting in that regard that they they that they even took mechanics from the online games in that as well, like um, Tifa's. Um, Tifa's version of Monk is straight out of fourteen. For example, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I played Monk she...
1: in fourteen, so I actually got it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so like the way she builds up um, sort of charges of a buff to improve how powerful she is, but can then spend those charges on various things. Yeah, that is straight out of fourteen's interpretation of Monk and it's great it's great it works really well they've they've really sort of nailed the way that they can put those different job classes in there and what's interesting about 7 remake um is that you can kind of customize and tweak to a certain degree as well and that kind of it, it's not necessarily a complete change of role in the party so like cloud is never going to be a tank for example but you can change cloud from being uh, sort of a black mage type into more of a thief type Uh, Depending on what weapon you've got equipped and what material you've got equipped and what stat bonuses he's getting from those as well. Yeah. The Um, elements,
1: the elements, the weapons became job classes, essentially.
0: Yeah yeah exactly because the, the uh, if you're not play seven remake uh, each weapon has its own complement of skill points and you spend these skill points on various uh passive bonuses and stat increases and so on and certain weapons are clearly geared towards casting magic certain weapons are clearly geared towards um tanking or physical damage or that sort of thing and so weapons aren't necessarily better than each other um, they remain valid
1: for the whole game. That's what I think is most beautiful. They've created a system where every weapon is valid at all times. So unlike mm. the original FF Seven, you know, one of the things that was most depressing about FF Seven was Buster Sword's cool as shit. You use it for the first hour and a half, and you never use the <laughs> Buster Sword again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. But like what they've done is they've made the Buster Sword always valid. Every weapon yeah. serves a different function and a point and purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so great. And it makes hunting and collecting the weapons even more important because they'll never, they never become invalid. They never become useless. They all serve a purpose. Even a freaking nail bat. Yeah. Like yeah. it has a different yeah. rhythm. It has a different set of stats. You could play nail bat cloud the whole game if you wanted to.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing I know someone. Yeah. Uh, my wife came in while I was playing when I just got the nail bat, and she was like, "Where's this cool sword gone?" So <laughs> like, I've got this now. This and, is cool. Uh, and just... <laughs> this is
1: cooler. Shh. <laughs> a, street, a street urchin gave it to me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh.
1: But yeah, so like remakes in the sense of FF Seven remake can actually be an opportunity to celebrate not just the game it's remaking, but like the legacy and the history of like the development lessons that the people making it have learned throughout the years to reapply yeah. those lessons in that new experience
2: mm-hmm.
1: to, to enhance something that was already good in the first place. Yeah. I don't, and square or another one of the houses where like in my notes, I had written that are no strangers to that. Certainly. Um, yeah. You know, how many times, just like we were talking about East. how many times mm-hmm. has FF one and two been remade?
0: Yeah yeah exactly again ff1 and 2 i mean they were remade several times within the same generation in fact so like if if you if you look back to final fantasy 1 that had its original famicom release and then it was released on msx as a slightly improved version um and then there was the nes version which had its own little tweaks and things there uh, and then that was that went to WonderSwan Color with its improved graphics, and the WonderSwan Color version became the PlayStation version, and the PlayStation version became the Game Boy Advance version, and then the Game Boy Advance version became the PSP version. Yeah. And each of those versions is worth playing for one reason or another. Yeah. Uh, but they're all they all have their differences. They all have their own unique twists on things, um, yeah, which gives each of them their own unique appeal as well. So, for example. My favourite version of Final Fantasy is the PSP version because it's it's just the version I, I like the most. But it's also the most accessible to people who have come to RPGs a bit more recently as well because the various mechanics that it uses in there are not quite as. Um, I don't know if antiquated is the right word but final fantasy one was very much based on tabletop dungeons and dragons and there were certain systems in there that people find it a bit difficult to deal with from a modern perspective particularly the magic system um so the magic system in final fantasy one uses um what tends to get referred to as a vansian magic system which is what D used which is where mages have um up to nine spell levels and as they level up they get more casts of a particular level so a high level uh, mage will be able to cast lots of level one spells and a few like level eight and level nine spells and you get more casts per level as you as you level up so that means there was a hard cap on how many times you could cast your most powerful spells uh, before having to to rest which meant you had to be very conservative with how much you could use magic in the original releases of final fantasy but the i think the game boy Advance version uh, onwards, so the Game Boy Advance and the PSP version and the smartphone versions, um, they use a more traditional magic point system. So they still have the spell level, so you still have to be a certain level in order to cast certain spells, but you just have a straight pool of magic points to pull from instead. And that is a lot more understandable and accessible to people. Um, who grew up with more recent rpgs um and it also it also i found in my playthrough on youtube as well that it, it it makes mages a bit more interesting to play as well
1: yeah or or useful like yeah, <laughs> yeah like like when you watch like old school playthroughs of the old final fantasies there's a reason like four warrior just like power runs are like the best yeah, way to play yeah. ff1 because like it's difficult to manage the yeah the mages with the limited casts yeah they're only useful at the bosses, but then, like, having them survive to the bosses is, like, <laughs> is a chore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Final Fantasy II is another good example of this as well, uh, because Final Fantasy II was very ambitious with its progression mechanics. Um, but obviously, that didn't take very long for people to be able to sort of exploit those and um, be able to manipulate them. And what the later versions of Final Fantasy II did is that they kept kind of the core of those progression mechanics but they made it unnecessary to use those exploits so for example a common trick in the old nes version of final fantasy 2 was to spend ages attacking your own party members in order to make their hit points go up you don't need to do that anymore because now the more recent versions they added a system where just based on the number of battles you've done every few battles you have your hit points just go up so there's no need to do those exploits anymore so it's sort of it's the opportunity to sort of plug a few holes in the system as well
2: that's cool and then yeah. of
0: course you've got that you've got the legendary stories of things that just didn't work in the original games as well like mm-hmm. most of the spells in final fantasy one and the ultima spell in final fantasy two uh i i i love the story about ultima and final fantasy two have you, have you heard this one no
1: i don't know i'm not i've i've actually never really played final fantasy two mm. so i don't so
0: so narratively, you go and get Ultima as like a significant narrative moment in Final Fantasy t You go, you go and get the Ultima Tome, which is trapped at the top of this big dungeon, and one of the sort of important side characters has to sort of sacrifice himself in order to open the door. And it's one of many, many, many deaths in that game. Um, but yeah, you get the Ultima Tome and you cast Ultima, and it's complete garbage. <laughs> um <laughs> in the original nes version um this was because it, it was bugged so it had like a hard cap of like 500 damage and you're like doing four figure damage with just melee attacks at this point in the game so um it seems completely useless um they they kind of fixed it in the psp and gba versions uh by making it based on a total of all your other magic skill levels so like the more you've leveled up all of your magic the more powerful ultima is so if you've bothered to grind and level all of the spells in the game you can get you can turn Ultima into the most powerful spell in the game in these later versions Uh but the the famicom version it was completely broken um (laughs) apparently what happened was like um I think it was Sakaguchi. Um, he went to the programmer at the time and said, "This, this, this spell is broken. It's not working properly. It's supposed to be the ultimate magic, but it's like crap." And the programmer just turned around to him and said, "Yeah, well, it's it's like a really ancient magic, and the people back then weren't as good at magic. So, like, the most ultimate magic from 500 years ago is not as good as the current magic we have now." And then he refused to fix it. <laughs> That's
1: incredible. You can justify anything with lore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's that's, such a good story i love it but um yeah yeah so, so i mean that's that's another opportunity for, for remakes to shine though is to sort of take these mechanics that whether intentionally or unintentionally didn't work properly in old versions and maybe didn't get caught until much later they can fix those and make the game work properly
1: yeah i mean that's uh, improvement is an important aspect of what we're talking about here it's uh, of mm-hmm. course we want to celebrate and respect the originals but the originals of these games are not flawless Wonderful as they may be, they're not flawless. Like, yeah, like yeah. people are all like, you know, things people are upset about about FF Seven, but like not respecting the source material or whatever. Like, the original FF Seven was barely intelligible. <laughs> I have I, I played that game so many times, and I still don't understand like half of the story <laughs> beats of the original FF Seven because it's unintelligible like the dialogue is like unintelligible. <laughs> And, like, things are, like, super important things are, like, glossed over in, like, one-sentence expositions, and it, like, never mentioned again. Yeah. It's, like, it's so difficult to really get the get the gist of the story in, F- in the original FF7 without, like, countless wikis and all the side games and, like... Hmm. And, that, and and remake is taking that and, and putting that in a coffee grinder and brewing up something better by extrapolating and 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 drawing everything out to make sure we understand it. Not in a head beating your way, you know, beating you over the head like Navi from Zelda kind of way. Mm-hmm. Like there's no irritating. Hey, listen. It's like a very. Yeah. It's a very natural. It's a very natural and loving approach to making sure the story makes more sense than it ever did before.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that is that I've seen more than one person say that they've gone back and started playing the original FF7 after finishing Remake, and they are appreciating 7 more because of it, because Remake provided them um, if remake has made some changes yes but it's also provided additional context to things that happened in the original game and they are thus getting a new appreciation for some of the things that went on in the original 7 by yeah, that there, new context
1: there's definitely been moments that i've been playing 7 remake where i've been like oh was that what that was supposed to mean yeah <laughs> like it's great <laughs> It's, it's it's not only giving me something new and amazing to play, but it's literally enhancing my appreciation of something I already loved. Yeah. You can't beat that. <laughs> like, I have the Switch version of 7, and I can't wait to tinker with it again yeah. after, after I'm yeah. done with Remake.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I... D- I don't know if I want to talk about the most controversial aspects of seven because I know you haven't finished it yet. And I yeah, know that people, no, people I are think... still very, very concerned about spoilers. So I think that might be something to return to at a later date. But I do, I do want to acknowledge that some people have a bit of a problem with some of the things that they're doing. But I wrote an article recently on seven um, that provides what I think uh this is all about so if 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 you're interested in that sort of thing go go and, and look at that article because that that says what i want to say about uh, about what we're going to do there so we will save this for the podcast so people don't sort of uh accidentally run into spoilers or anything yeah. but we'll, um, do a,
1: we'll do a seven remake episode at some yeah. point once we have both really just rung it out for all it's worth
0: yeah we'll definitely. come back definitely
1: um, so what else did i have did you have any other titles that were interesting I'm
0: i think those those are the main sort of specific titles i wanted to bring up the the only other notes that i made were uh we, we sort of covered a few of these already but um i had sort of some specific challenges that developers face when they're remaking games yeah um and so the, the first of those i've put is um the nostalgia for the original version and the question of how true to stay to it so i think i think that's something that's really raised its head with seven remake in particular but a, a lot of other stuff over the years as well as doubtless run into this as well. So when you when you are remaking something that is so widely beloved and such an important part of popular culture, how true can you stay to it or how true should you stay to it? Should you reimagine it? Should you do something different with it or should you do a note for note remake? There's not really an easy answer to that. Um and, I mean ultimately it is in the hands of the creators, which is what a lot of people seem to forget. Ultimately, it is the creator's choice of how they handle their remake or their reimagining of something. But a lot of people, because they're so personally attached to things, they feel like they have a certain sense of ownership over it, and they feel like it should be a certain way. And so, that's a big challenge that people have to face uh, with with remaking games, um, which ties in with sort of the second point, which is resistance to new or changed content by the audience. Um, which I mean, I've, I guess I've already covered there um and then the final point is uh, sort of marketing and target audience so when you're making a remake for something who do you aim it at and how do you do that so final fantasy 7 remake is obviously marketed at people who liked final fantasy 7 but it's also a big budget game that is supposed to appeal to newcomers as well so how, how do you aim it at those very disparate groups and what are the considerations you have to bear in mind when you're trying to make something that in theory should appeal to a broad audience
1: was it was it final fantasy 15 where their ad campaign was like a final fantasy for like long like lifelong fans and newcomers
0: yeah no no final fantasy final fantasy 15 literally says that when you boot it up yeah you start the game and it says it it says something along the lines of like a final fantasy for final fantasy fans or something like that and then everyone went no it isn't yeah (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I just I just remember one of the most recent Square games like that was specifically part of their marketing effort was the statement yeah, that like, was fi- that this was is 15. something we've made for fans and newcomers alike to like try to yeah. m- mince the two. But I just keep thinking how like that's easily applicable to Seven Remake because I know people mm-hmm. who've never played Seven who are interested in playing Seven Remake because it just looks like a friggin' cool game. Yeah, you know, like I've got a buddy at work who isn't really into Japanese role-playing games at all but um, except Fire Emblem he really likes Fire Emblem and I was like mm-hmm. well if, if you if you can deal with Fire Emblem give this a try like you might like it yeah. like
2: yeah
1: you know it's 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 cool because it's it gives people an opportunity who've never experienced it before it's just as a new game like they don't care that it's a remake it's just a new game yeah yeah you know it's like we were talking about Ys. I didn't play Ys until like the first time I ever played an ease game was an import version of the PS2 port of the second one. Yeah, That's the first yeah, time no, I ever I mean, played an ease game.
0: I mean, my first ease was the PC port of the PSP version. So, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So, so these these are new games to people without the experience. But um, you know, like I would argue, you know, my my opinions on this kind of stuff are always fairly controversial. In that, like, my argument is to what extent do you change and remake to what extent do you innovate on or, or how faithful do you stay mm-hmm. I, i'm not a fan of stagnation yeah in yeah. any in any art form so my my big thing is i would argue that remakes have a responsibility to distinguish themselves mm. it's it, yeah. like that like that's what they are there for that's why they exist well Be- yeah yeah Be-
0: i mean I, and this this comes up a lot in film doesn't it in particular it's like why does this exist and like yeah. if if you're not doing something new with it then why does it exist?
1: Yeah, I would argue that's the other way around, right? Like a lot of mm. people a lot of people get mad when stuff doesn't hew close enough to the original and I would say yeah. then why bother making it? Yeah. The original exists. The original mm-hmm. is there. Like it never goes away. Like if you want to play the original, play the original. Mhm you know there are there are rare opportunities like you know in our last episode we talked when we talked about Psycho we talked about the amazing work that the people behind the the switch ports of the Psycho games did when they literally had to rebuild Zero Gunner 2 from the ground up because most of the yep. original code was gone that's yep. that's an amazing effort of historical preservation mm-hmm. that's a little bit different than what we're talking about here like slavish recreation like that has its place in terms of preservation when the original yep. is inaccessible yeah yeah, but if the original is fully accessible, and let's face it, man, you can get FF Seven better than you've ever been able to get it before on modern consoles. In the
0: you can you can get FF Seven on literally every currently available platform, including phones.
1: Yeah, <laughs> with with a revamped, improved translation, H- uh-huh. clearer visuals. So there's no there's no reason. To be pissy about anything 7 Remake does. Because mm-hmm. your, your beloved original is readily accessible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Just go play it. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I believe that, that remakes have a, a responsibility to justify their existence by having a unique identity. By making changes, by making improvements and 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 allowing new generations of programmers and creators to enhance the legacy of the original by putting their own spin on what it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So and I mean like the the question of respecting the source material when that comes up. You're not changing the source material. The source material exists. You're making a new game that happens to be based on the old one. I I started playing Final Fantasy VII Remake, and it didn't take very long for me to think, this is a new game, this is right. a brand new game, yeah. As yeah. like it was hitting some of the same story beats, yes, there were some familiar scenes that made me nostalgic, but I was playing a new game. It's a brand new game. It's as simple as that, really. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tribute. Beyond the buried in me, did an amazing cover of. Uh motley cruz kickstart my heart i like both of them <laughs> it's, a di- <laughs> it's a different it's a different song yes. by different people yes. with different ideas different experiences um and it's a self. like there's no better way to respect source material than to celebrate it mm-hmm. and to do your best to bring your vision of it to bear it's not disrespectful of the source material to make changes, to make improvements, to to criticize, to evaluate, and, and to leave things out when it's when necessary. Because the source yeah. material exists to be respected, mm-hmm. and the, the and uh, you know, what, imitation may be the sincerest form of flattery. But I, I would argue that to take something, make it your own, and celebrate in your own way is an even more sincere form of flattery. Yeah. I don't know, but that's how I feel about the whole the whole thing. It's just, it's not only it's not only what I what I like, but it's it's what I expect and require from a remake that it justifies its existence by being different.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. It's so, like I say, I I I finished seven remake the other night, and I wasn't dissatisfied with any of it. It, it I I enjoyed it, and things about it that people are mad about, I was just like it's a new game yeah this exactly. is a, this is a new thing these are new things i'm excited to experience new stuff with these characters that i love so much
1: yeah yeah i mean we have examples of both right like mm-hmm. one of the one of the series i wrote about when i was kind of assembling my notes to, t- to have this discussion was um i even even more than final fantasy i like the mana series the second of yeah. games because I, I really like action rpgs um mm-hmm. I'll take a top-down action RPG over a turn-based RPG any day. I just love the cadence and the rhythm, and, and I love that act of exploration and action. Um, so I love the mana games. And at, at, at the end of this month, with the release of Trials of Mana, we will now have remakes available of every one of the original Mana trilogy. So the original and Setsu slash Final Fantasy Adventure was actually remade on the Game Boy Advance as Sword of Mana. And oh, it,
0: yeah, I forgot about that one. It was, yeah. a,
1: it was a full, lovingly made, ground-up remake of the original and Setsu um, using graf- the graphic style that Brownie Brown had, like, really honed over the years. So it looked a bit mm-hmm. more like the Super Nintendo games and, and modern games from Brownie Brown. Um, yeah. And it felt like the later Manda games in terms of like, the cadence of the combat. Um, and it took out, like, all the kind of you know, a lot there were like tenuous links to Final Fantasy and the original Seek and Setsu, but they were just kind of like thrown in there as like marketing ploys. Yeah. Like they weren't really sincerely part of the narrative. So like, a lot of those were just removed to make this just like a full-fledged Seek and Setsu game with its own special identity. So it was a really it was a really cool example of how to do this, even just on like a handheld. Um yeah. Yeah. So, so they did that and there was a lot of effort into this remake. But then, uh, was it two or three years ago, we got the remake of Seekin Nensetsu two, Secret of Mana. Mm-hmm. And everyone hates it. <laughs> Every like I don't know anyone who liked that game. And one of the biggest complaints I had besides the some of the framiness and the performance issues with it didn't do anything to justify yeah. its existence. So it's like this a lot of the same people who are like I hear complaining about like source material, we're like, well, this is done the- didn't do anything it didn't add anything new it was basically the seek and nensetsu remake is just a 3d creation beat for beat of the original it's almost a skin yeah. it's almost yeah. a skin so it not not if there's anything wrong with that but like people were angry that it didn't do any because because it was slave it was a slavish recreation even to the point where it didn't improve the combat like it kept some of like the the jankiness and like the rhythm problems that the original secret of mana's combat had so a lot of people a lot of modern players approaching it didn't like the game who didn't have an experience Mm -hmm. with the original secret of mana because they couldn't get their hands around the expectations of the combat and the timing yeah Um, because it was just a beat for beat recreation including the timing Mm -hmm. so there we have an example of what happens when you do just recreate something with modern tech, beat for beat, programming, bit for programming, bit, timing. It, it, it's not well received because a modern audience can't access it. Yeah. And, and, and the people who think they're fans and they think they're longtime lovers of the original, they can play the original. They're bored of it because there's nothing new to experience.
0: Yeah. But then... Then we've got the remake of Trials of Mana coming out, which everyone is super excited for.
1: <laughs> cause it's taking, <laughs> cause it's taking the magic of Seekend and Setsu 3 and bringing it up to a third player, a third person angle with more modern combat sensibilities. And it's, yeah. it's a great opportunity for fans of the original to explore their love of the original in a new way while providing yeah. people who don't even know what the hell Seekend and Setsu 3 is with a beautiful new action RPG to experience yeah so like we so with the mana series we've had all sides of that coin and we've Mm -hmm. seen which one is successful and which one generates buzz and positive attention it's not slavish recreations of the original
0: yeah yeah and the the nice thing is with trials of mana you can play both versions on the same platform
1: yeah it's true (laughs) it's true yeah you get the the mana collection and it's got the original right there for you yeah yeah i mean those are the big series i kind of wanted to talk about i mean there's so many examples, right? Like people love the Pokemon games. Yeah. the the, we've had three generations. Now the, the red green generation, the gold silver and the Ruby Sapphire generation have all been remade to the current handhelds with bells and whistles added that complement the expectations of the modern tech with online capabilities, slightly expanded narratives, um, the ability to trade and bring those classic Pokemon into the new gen games, if you want to. So Nintendo's no uh, no stranger to this either. Yeah, it, and those are those are great examples to how to do it right. Um, I'm no Resident Evil fan, but man, did people love that remake of two last year.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, A- and interestingly, three is people don't great. don't seem to be loving three quite as much for some reason.
1: Oh no, not as much.
0: No, I I mean it's still been pretty positively received by a lot of people but it doesn't seem to have quite the same level of fervor over it that 2 had. I think um,
1: generally in the Resident Evil community people don't like 3 as much. Mm. Like it's not it's not as loved as 2 and 4. Yeah. I don't know though. I, I just, I just think that was another good example of, of how to really do it right. Because man, when that re- oh Resident yeah, Evil, t- yeah, that wor- the world stopped spinning when that Resident Evil Two remake came out for like three weeks. It was like all yeah. anyone could talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's all the titles I had to bring up, and all, kind of all the examples of kind of failures and successes that I've seen. Um, we could literally just talk about Square remakes all day. You know, like I have no yeah. I have notes here about the Matrix software's three D remakes of um three and four.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which paved the way for Bravely Default to exist. Uh huh. So And so, then the
0: completely separate remake of four for PSP.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a two D remake, right? Yeah. Us- using the engine from the one and two remake. Right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think so, yeah.
1: Okay, so yeah so many examples so many examples mm. out there of different ways different approaches and different successes and failures
0: mm. good stuff alright I think that's probably a good place to cut it then because we've gone off for nearly an hour on that and like we say there will almost certainly be a specific podcast on final fantasy 7 remake at some point because there is a lot to talk about there um but we'll wait until we've both had plenty of time to to digest that and enjoy it as well um worth noting as well there's there's some some post-game stuff you can do after you've finished it as well um if you're, you are interested in playing more of it as well so i'm gonna investigate some of that as well there's apparently some some bits and pieces you can only find in the hard mode so um They're called like manuscripts and stuff, so presumably they'll have little bits and pieces of lore in there as well. so I'm interested to see what those contain. Um, Uh, But yeah, we'll have a we'll have a discussion on that at some point when we've uh, we've both spent uh, some more time with that. But for now, would you like to tell people where to find you online?
1: Sure, as always, you can find my artwork at MisterGilderPixels.com or um, also on Instagram at MisterGilderPixels, where I share my completed pieces and work in progress shots.
0: Fabulous, and you can find me at moegamer.net writing stuff about games most days. Um, currently, the Atelier Mega feature is ongoing, as I mentioned earlier, We're up to Atelier Iris 3 at the time of recording. Um, continue on and complementing that with all sorts of other bits and pieces that I've had time to uh, to sink my teeth into recently as well. So you can probably expect something about Snack World at some point in the near future as well, because I've been I picked that up after uh, Chris enthused about it on the last episode and I've been having a lovely time with that as yeah, well. Next so episode, I'm, I'm, next episode, yeah. I
1: want to hear all about your your experiences with it. Yeah, definitely. I love we should, we that should, game
0: we should try and get some multiplayer time in as well because oh, i can see it being a, a ton of fun in co-op so but yeah we'll save that for next time um you can also find an audio version of this podcast over on soundcloud if you're watching on youtube and a video version on youtube if you're listening on soundcloud um yeah check uh check for various links to uh, social media and that sort of thing and just remains for us to say as always thank you very much for watching and or listening and we'll see you again next time thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast remember you can watch a video version of it over on youtube be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on japanese and japanese inspired video games new and old every weekday Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.